0: Two and a Half Admins, episode 106. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you want to plug EuroBSDCon again, Alan.
1: Yeah, uh, I'll very shortly be getting on a plane to, to head over there to present. So yeah, remind people that EuroBSDCon is
0: September 15th to 18th in Vienna, Austria. And hopefully we'll see some people there. Yeah, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then the first one is that Microsoft has changed its licensing with regards to Windows Server and virtualization.
2: And not just Windows Server. The story so far has been mostly pitched to be about Windows Server, and that's probably what Microsoft's biggest take on it was. Basically, you're now able to license Windows per virtual core in a virtualized environment instead of only per physical core of the host machine. This becomes really important in a cloud hosting environment because the way that most folks are using the cloud these days, they don't have any idea how many physical processors or cores you know are in the machine that's running their VM. And in fact, that might change from one day to the next without them even knowing it. Licensing Windows per virtual core instead brings that licensing down to something that the person who is actually paying for Windows at least knows what it is. Yeah, and generally has some control over? (laughs) Some control, although that is one of the problems. You know, you can pay a license for Windows on 8 cores or 16 or 64, but you don't know whether you actually even do have that many physical cores because it's entirely possible to oversubscribe to CPU cores. So the whole thing's a bit of a mess. Like I said, though, this is actually not just about Windows Server. I found it very interesting this also applies to Windows 10 and Windows 11, which clears up a massive hurdle to trying to roll your own VDI, virtual desktop infrastructure. Uh, Most folks weren't aware of this, but it's a real nightmare trying to license desktop versions of Windows for virtual desktop systems, which is why so many of the providers out there that offer virtual desktops... They're offering Windows Server for your desktop. Now, usually this works out basically fine. Maybe the licensing is a little bit more expensive for the provider. Maybe not, because they're usually using a data center edition that allows unlimited numbers of installations on the same physical box anyway. But sometimes it can cause problems for business customers who want to do this because they'll discover that, for example, a CPA might find out that uh, the product that they're trying to do people's tax returns on all of the QA on that was done on Windows 10. And does it work on server 2016 or server 2019? Probably. But it wasn't tested.
1: It's not supported.
2: Yeah, but not always. And when you run into a problem very frequently, you know, into it or whoever the application developer du jour happens to be may say, oh, well, that's a shame you're having that problem. But uh, yeah, you're supposed to be doing this on Windows 10. It either works or it doesn't on Windows Server. And that's not our problem. So all that can go away a little bit further now, and it becomes much easier to actually properly license your own virtual desktop infrastructure if you just want to set up a bunch of VMs and put Windows 10 on them. And you know maybe you want to actually provide that service to a bunch of small businesses. Maybe you want to be a managed service provider who is creating your own virtual desktop infrastructure, and you don't want to just burn all of it on these really expensive Citrix licenses that, you know, up until now, were pretty much the only way to do it.
1: Yeah, I'm hoping this means that some of the places where I have to use VDI will not have quite so many restrictions and be like, hey, you can have two people logged in at once now, it's okay.
2: I suspect a lot of our listeners are a little confused right now. Like, what's the problem? You buy a copy of Windows 10, you install it on your VM, and, you know, you're good to go. But it doesn't actually work that way.
1: Yeah, like, so some of our customers with VDI stuff is like, we can't just connect into their network with a vpn and directly access servers or something we're connecting in with some kind of vdi client like vmware horizon or whatever and accessing one of many vms that's running a desktop that then is as as if i was sitting at a desk at the company where i then can access things Uh, and sometimes like i'm not even allowed to copy and paste back and forth to that vm which can be really annoying but, you know, it's about preventing data exfiltration and so on. And so they have a server somewhere with just tons of these VMs. And yeah, the licensing for that was a lot harder to do, especially if they were like, well, you're putting it on a machine with, with you know, two sockets of, of 24 cores each or whatever. So you're going to have to pay this big license for every copy, even though each of those VMs only has two cores. And it was kind of complicated.
2: VMware and Citrix had their own special snowflake deals with Microsoft to make VDI with the desktop versions of the operating system possible. For anybody else up until now, it technically really was not possible because to provide hosting of a Windows desktop operating system in a virtual environment, you're supposed to use the enterprise version of Windows, not the retail version. And this becomes a big problem because a lot of people don't realize just how messed up enterprise (laughs) licensing for desktop OSs is In order to legitimately use an enterprise license of Windows 10 or Windows 11 up until now, you also had to have a valid OEM license for the hardware it was going to run on. And that valid OEM license allowed you the privilege of paying for also an enterprise license. And if this sounds really ridiculous, first of all, it is really ridiculous. But the thought process here was that the people buying enterprise licensing, A, are enterprises and basically perfectly willing to just hemorrhage money for software licenses at you. And B, the idea was that what they wanted to do is they just wanted to be able to have, you know, like a common image to deploy across an entire fleet of machines. And the way to do that properly was using enterprise licensing. And so, yeah, those enterprises were buying two Windows licenses for every machine, the one that they got, you know, with the price of the Dell or the HP or whatever workstation that goes into the fleet, and also the additional enterprise seat that they bought to be able to do their own imaging.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting because the the whole enterprise pricing model was kind of based on the fact of, It's an office somewhere with hundreds of desktop machines or and laptops that already had a Windows license, but we need to make it an enterprise license so there's an add-on fee and spinning all this stuff up together just to be able to do it, and it was a bit crazy. And that led to some legal actions brought by European cloud providers who said that Microsoft's licensing program represented an unfair competition and left them at a disadvantage. And so that's why some of these changes are being driven by Microsoft trying to settle that lawsuit and say, you know, we will make it easier than ever to license Windows Server for virtual environments and the cloud by relaxing the licensing rules and to, you know, not to reflect legacy software licensing practices anymore where everything was tied to the physical machine because oftentimes that's not the case anymore.
2: And just to be clear, add-on fee is an incredibly generous description. Because the actual cost per seat of Windows Enterprise was generally as much or more than the cost of the OEM license you already had to have for the box.
0: There is a big asterisk here, though, and that is that it doesn't apply to Alibaba, AWS, GCP, or Azure. So the huge cloud companies don't count as part of this change.
1: Well, partly because
0: most of us already
1: have some other side deal with Microsoft, and that this, again, is mostly Microsoft's reaction to getting sued by the second tier of cloud providers in Europe. And I wouldn't be too worried about Azure because, you know, it's owned by Microsoft. So I think they don't have
2: problems getting licenses. Yeah. Yeah, nobody's really bringing their own Windows license to Azure as far as I know.
1: The other interesting thing that kind of comes as part of this is that they also allow cloud solution providers to sell their end customers one- and three-year subscriptions for things like Windows Server, remote desktop services, SQL Server, and so on. So instead of you know, having to buy a license up front or some of the existing monthly options now, they have options to get a slightly better deal and license it a year or three at a time instead of paying the much higher li- monthly cost for the license or having to
0: try to you know, buy licenses at right. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. The challenge with endpoint security has always been that it's difficult to scale. And when remote work took over, the challenge got exponentially harder. You need visibility into your fleet of devices in order to meet security goals and reduce service desk tickets. But how do you get that visibility when different parts of your company run on Mac, Windows and Linux? You get Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that gives IT teams a single dashboard for all devices regardless of their operating system. Collide gives you real-time access to your fleet's data and can do things that traditional MDMs can't. And instead of installing intrusive agents or locking down devices, Collide takes a user-focused approach that communicates security recommendations to your employees directly on Slack. You can answer every question you have about your fleet without intruding on your workforce. Visit collide.com slash 25A to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag just for activating a free trial. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot slash 25A. Google are changing their terms of service for the Play Store. And that's going to affect Android apps that use VPNs. Specifically, it's
1: trying to block certain apps that are VPNs. The idea is they don't want apps that do nothing but uh, manipulate ads and impact app monetization. But something that would might be caught by that is something like the, uh, the DuckDuckGo browser that basically does a VPN to local host so that all the traffic on your phone goes through it so that it can filter out tracking cookies and so on. But that will, you know, impact app monetization. And Google's like, no, that's not allowed.
0: Although DuckDuckGo don't think they're going to be affected.
1: Right, but they're considered like a good case of this. But the way Google works the the terms of service is specifically to target things like this. And, you know, the fact that for now, they might allow DuckDuckGo because it, looks good for them not to to blight or block that specific case. As with all of these kind of walled garden marketplaces, Google can change their mind at any point and decide to yank somebody's app.
2: Try Googling Google Change TOS Play Store. You don't get anything about this. That's funny.
1: So uh, one of the things that the change states is that only apps that either use the Android VPN service base class and that function primarily as a VPN can use the secure device-level tunnel to a remote service thing. So only if the app is basically sold as a VPN can it do any of this kind of stuff. The rules appear to be intended to deter data-gathering VPN services, such as the one Facebook was trying to do that they discontinued, Onavo or whatever. And obviously, to prevent ad fraud, You know, uh, install this VPN app and we'll steal the ad revenue from all the other apps on your phone and various malicious things, which that's a good thing. But as with everything, it kind of always has a wider impact than you would assume. But one of the things is it means that the developers will have to declare that as part of the metadata for their app. So like when it's telling about what this app has access to on your phone or whatever, it will say that it uses the VPN service class and is able to do that, and it must encrypt data from the device to the VPN endpoint and must comply with all the other developer program policies, especially those related to ad fraud permissions
2: and malware. If anyone out there has not already, you can go ahead and put to bed any memories you have of Google's our company policy is do no evil. The company itself officially put that to rest probably 10 years ago now, but it it just seems like they are on a further and further slide away from that. Between this change and the one that has made it impossible for Amazon's app to actually function to sell you anything on Android, it doesn't seem like Google has anybody's interests at heart anymore other than its own pocketbook.
1: Yeah. And, you know, they compared it to the Apple rules, obviously. The iOS rules state, you must make a clear declaration of what user data will be collected and how it will be used in the app screen prior to the user interaction to purchase or otherwise use the service. Apps offering VPN services must not sell user disclosed to third parties any data uh, for any purpose and must commit to this in their privacy policy. And while Apple's VPN rules don't specifically address interfering with ads, it's likely somewhere else in the iOS guidelines, you know, there's enough wiggle room for interpretation that they would be able to ban apps that we're interfering with ads in other apps, but again, they can also just change the terms of service when they want to change the rules. <laughs>
2: well, Apple's policy requires that VPN apps use Apple's own Any VPN Manager API. And so basically, Apple kind of has its own technical club to hit people over the head with if it doesn't like what a VPN is doing.
1: Right. Well, and basically Google is adopting that same thing where you have to use, uh, but because it's Java, it's called the VPN Service Base Class, which is somewhat analogous anyway. And, you know, they mentioned that Google for years has already tried to disallow Android apps that block ads in any other Android apps with the exceptions of browsers. But even the Chrome Web Store now includes language in its terms of service that could be used at some point to ban ad-blocking extensions if Google chooses to want to do that considering they make all their money off ads. Well, yeah,
0: they've changed some of the technical standards of extensions in Chrome so that it's harder for ad-blocking extensions like Ublock Origin to block those ads. And it's, it's very, very clear why, because as more and more people wake up to the reality that you can block ads, Google is panicking because that's their core business or one of their core businesses. Yeah.
1: And, you know, the fact that they own the browser now means
0: that they're like, well, what if we don't want ad blockers anymore? Not only do they own the biggest browser, they get to shape the web standards as well for a lot of downstream browsers that are using Blink.
1: Some of this does make sense as Google, you know, creating safer and more usable web experience by making sure that plugins aren't able to do things that are malicious. But every time they do that, they're also oftentimes doing something that benefits them in in blocking the ad blockers or whatever. And, you know, they have this new pending uh, manifest v3 transition that will make ad blocking extensions less capable again as they keep making it harder... And harder for the, the extensions to interfere with the browser which sure that does somewhat prevent malware but in this case it also happens to make the ad blocker not work so well and google benefits from that and you know it seems like they're just trying to wrap it in the the cape of
0: making the internet safer but as for google dropping their don't be evil for me the real tipping point was the alphabet transition that was just for tax reasons and, you know, business reasons, but that was, to me, that that was like a real moment of where they just stopped caring about their image anymore. They stopped pretending to be a startup almost and just accepted that they were just this huge corporate entity now.
1: Yeah, and that was kind of some of the idea behind Alphabet was they were going to have a bunch of these little lean startups under that umbrella, but we've not really seen much come out of that and it's all been just the big goog
2: it's also a bit disturbing to me that google is saying if you want to have a vpn using our operating system then you're going to have to route the clear text for anything that that goes over that tunnel through our api that is a very explicit requirement of using they just call it vpn service in android It doesn't appear to have any cryptography built in it itself. It appears to only be about, you know, the underlying network. So you have to tell VPN service what your remote endpoint is and what your tunnel subnet should be. You have options for binding it to a particular real network transport. Like if you only wanted to go over a particular route, you can establish parameters like that. But once your VPN has been established, you literally read and write from it using descriptors on that interface. And I'm just, I'm not real sure how I feel about that. I think you still have the encryption happening before you write to
1: the API. Yeah, you're you're correct, Alan. You're correct. But still, it means they are getting the metadata of what VPN you're using and, and at least some of the stuff. And, you know, the other part of the other reason to use that is they want the configuration to be global on the machine so that everything gets routed through it. So when you're using it, which makes sense, but it also means they know a lot about what's happening before it goes out to VPN.
2: It makes it incredibly easy for one of the largest advertising companies in the world that is all about harvesting and processing and selling your data to others. It gives them just an incredibly easy, no machine learning required way to say, hey, this is exactly how much traffic this person is routing over a VPN instead of over a public network. This is what their endpoints are. You know, these are what physical networks are used for these VPNs. It just, ah, I feel like we're we're getting pretty far past the boundaries of what control an operating system vendor should have over your data and understanding your data and reporting back to it on your data.
1: But in this case, because Google owns the OS, they can get a lot of information out of the app before it even gets to the VPN. So, you know, they always had access to the clear text before the VPN got a hold of it anyway. I'm not saying they do something with it, but they always could and they always had that option of getting some of that metadata and being able to decide that oh well this google traffic is not going to go via the vpn where it might get blocked it'll just go out plain or maybe it'll go via the vpn unless it gets blocked and so on but it is a little creepy to think that the person who owns the os of my device doesn't necessarily have my best interest at heart or their commercial interest is not aligned with my safety
2: You know, I'm used to like their commercial interests may not be aligned with my interest of one type or another, safety being one of those. The thing that gets me is the just complete lack of understood boundaries. It feels like these days, the Googles and the Apples and and the Amazons of the world, they just don't recognize the concept of I'm not allowed to have this. And it's unethical for me to be trying to get this and I should avoid going after this. It it feels like all sense of that kind of boundary has just departed. And I don't like it. Yeah, I agree. And I think the monopoly is part of the problem. It's like
1: I want the company I get my operating system from not to have a vested interest in showing me ads. That would be nice. Technically, Apple doesn't have the vested interest in showing me ads to the same degree that Google does. But you don't really have any other options in operating system either. You know, we've kind of, in a bunch of different ways, let ourselves get into not quite a monoculture, but pretty close to it for a lot of different things in our whole tech stack. And I think that's something that we kind of lost from the original internet, where there were always seven different options for every part of the stack. And, you know, there was plenty of different providers if you wanted to do something. And and now almost everything is down to just one or two protocols from one or two providers, and it's just not as resilient to one bad actor. <laughs> you know, if everybody wanted to move and switch because of something that happened, where were they going to go? And then the amount of power it gives Google when when they can just say, well, where are you going to go? It's like being the cable company.
2: <laughs> yeah, when you only have one choice, we call that a monopoly, and it gives the monopoly all kinds of leverage to abuse its customers although you know at that point customer isn't even the best word for monopoly the thing that fewer people seem to realize quite so strongly or be willing to talk about is that when you have two options that basically means you have two monopolies now all you're doing is you're giving them every opportunity to collude not necessarily directly on a hey joe how do you want to screw the customer today basis like that's not usually how it works it's more of a just kind of, you know, get a feel for the waters and be like, well, you know, if, if the other outfit is doing this terrible thing, like, I can do that. Why shouldn't I do that? There's no reason for me not to do that. So, yeah, I should do that too.
0: Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offer 24-7, 365 to every level of user, To ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. So Lorenzo says, I live in the UK and I've experienced that many ISPs block DNS over HTTPS, Doe. I have Virgin Media at home and as expected, not only Doe is blocked, but their DNS is utterly worrying. They block any website that references a VPN. And of course, I cannot change DNS from the provided modem. Is there anything I can do? At the moment, I've manually set a different DNS for each device. I know I can use a VPN. I've set up a lovely WireGuard on my free Oracle cloud, but that sounds like overkill. I know I can use my own router in Cascade after the ISP one, but my experience suggests that using cheap consumer electronics introduces unwanted latency, plus another box lying around. All I would like is to surf the whole internet, not just what my ISP wants me to see, and maybe do that without sending plain text requests to my DNS. Side question, how can an ISP block DOH? Is that legal? I'm probably naive, but isn't it just an encrypted HTTPS request?
2: It is just an HTTPS request. As far as whether your ISP can block it and whether it's legal, that's a better question for Joe than me, not being a UK citizen myself. But typically, there's not a whole lot in the way of laws about what ISPs can or can't do to filter your connection, particularly if they make some kind of pious, hand-wavy slogan about it being for the your safety or the greater good of the internet or or whatever. As for the rest of it, if your ISP is being that aggressive about DNS and you can make things work by selecting DNS that's on the other end of a WireGuard tunnel, no, I I don't think that's overkill at all. WireGuard is extremely lightweight, and if that's your most reliable way to get your DNS requests out of your ISP's grasp, then by all means, use it. Although
1: I think what he's asking is having to use a VPN to cause the DNS to come over the pipe. And I think really what the answer here is if your modem from your ISP allows you to disable its DHCP server and you could run your own, you could have each device on your network get the configuration, including the DNS from whatever DNS server you run on your network, whether that be by cascading your own router box or just running it on some other machine you have so that... All your devices pick a different DNS server that either is accessed via VPN like Jim is talking about, or just even if it's over Virgin's regular connection there, that would be the way to do it without having to go to every single device and manually override the DNS server it's getting from DHCP in the, the operating system.
2: I suspect the problem is a little bit more invasive than just the DHCP automatically using Virgin's. I mean, if, if they're... Right. If they're actively blocking DOH, that does not sound like a trustworthy ISP.
1: Yeah, blocking DOH is not that easy, although I suppose some of the popular DOH servers, you can just get a list of them and block them. But in general, like Lorenzo asked, the whole point of DOH is the traffic looks like you're just making a request to an encrypted website like normal. And so it, it can't necessarily tell that it's DOH, although people have developed ways of detecting that. So at a conference I was at a couple of years ago, back when we still had conferences, and we're looking forward to finally getting back to that. But Paul Vixie showed a a tool that every time you made an HTTP request, it would also make a DOE request to that address. And if it responded, then it would go on his blacklist as like, okay, you're a DOE server, I'm going to make sure that nobody's sending requests to any DNS server, but the one on my LAN. In his case, it was, he filters what his kids can get to on the internet, and he doesn't want them having a way around it. And when the browser on their device randomly decides that it's going to use Cloudflare's Doe server or something, he was
2: like, not at my house. I mean, Alan, what you just said is it's trivial to detect and block DOH. It
1: (laughs) wasn't well understood how to do it, but now it is, yes.
2: Also, I don't need to know the contents of the requests that somebody's making to 8.8.8.8 to know that that's a DNS server, and if I don't want them using it, I can just null route any packets going there. I personally kind of doubt that Virgin is blocking every possible DOH provider. I suspect that they're blocking well-known ones. The problem with that is, yeah, you could find one that's not well-known, but DNS resolution is such a core part of the internet experience. I really hesitate to advise people, oh, just go look for some weird squirrely thing that you know nobody's ever heard of. That can have performance implications, security implications, privacy implications. Yeah, and performance
1: is is a huge one there because that's mm-hmm. it's generally the biggest thing of how snappy your internet feels is how quickly you can get those DNS responses back. But like Jim said, if you get on a dodgy one or something and it's, it's giving you back the wrong results, then you start getting stuff like the wrong Google results or X, more ads than you were before and so on. But I've seen similar things like the ISP my parents used to have. I was there once using their Wi-Fi and my machine was acting kind of funny and websites weren't loading. And when I you know, switched to just a, a plain connection, it was like it was injecting a pop-up into Google to tell us that they were at like 75% of their bandwidth quota for the month. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I understand what they're doing. That's not really malicious. They're trying to say, you know, don't get an overage bill. But at the same time, they're modifying the content of Google when I'm searching for something to inject some JavaScript to pop up a window
2: and tell me this. Wow, that's bad. In the early to mid two thousands, Time Warner Cable was doing the same thing to just to try to inject ads <laughs> into people's internet. They, it, it never really got out of like the the wide trial phase, but they were determined to do it. <laughs> well, I remember when ISPs did that for like any domain name that didn't
1: resolve, their DNS server would return a result that was just a Google search page with ads plastered all over it, and be like, "Were you actually looking for whatever you know you misspelled or?" whatever domain you tried to type?
2: A lot of them still get up to all kinds of shenanigans. Like if you're just using ISP DNS, it's all bad. None of it is quite as bad, in in my opinion, as actually trying to inject things into HTTP traffic to begin with. The ability to do that is a large reason that we have such widespread HTTPS to begin with, because it became increasingly clear you cannot trust ISPs with traffic that they can mess with because they'll freaking do it. Right. And
1: and that's not even considering, you know, you, maybe you live in a country with a regime that's going to use that data even more maliciously than your ISP just trying to make extra money off you.
2: Right. Getting back to Lorenzo's situation, if I were in a situation with an ISP that struck me as that malicious, I would probably be looking at doing something like setting up a local bind server feeding that local bind server over a VPN tunnel so that it does its own lookup resolutions. That way you've got locally cached inside the network for everybody to use. You've got trustworthy resolution that escapes your malicious ISP and, you know, does what it needs to do elsewhere, kind of ticks most, if not all of the boxes that way. That may or may not be a little bit more than Lorenzo personally wants to get into, but it is a good solution. I think it's a good balance, too, because
1: uh, compared to like trying to route everything on every device over VPN, that requires a lot more connections. Whereas this is everything you just use the Internet normally, but we'll have this one VM or whatever somewhere that's doing the DNS and have it use the VPN out to like your your Oracle Cloud box or whatever, so that it's getting raw Internet access to to do the DNS resolution. But you're caching it inside your network and not having to reconfigure VPNs on every device on your network and so on. Other options like looking at a different ISP might not be that helpful here because a the Monopoly stuff we were talking about the other day, but also some of this is, I believe, regulated in the UK about blocking certain things, and ISPs have to have built infrastructure for this and make at least token attempts to stop you from easily getting around it.
0: Yeah, ISPs of a certain size do, but the problem is that often the only reasonable speed internet you can get is virgin media certainly where i am right now that's my only option i can get dsl that's about six megabits per second or i can get virgin like up to i don't know 500 megabit maybe i think i have 350 i don't really
2: need any more than that in summary kids stay safe wrap that danis yep
0: (laughs) (laughs) right well we better get out of here then Remember, show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington.
2: I'm at JRSSnet. And I'm at Alan Jude.
0: We'll see you next week.